Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Ashley Peverett is co-founder and CEO of the Building Communities Initiative. A self-proclaimed entrepreneur, he grew up in a family business, so I had a good head start. While working, Ashley studied business part-time and completed an MBA from the University of New England. He climbed that corporate ladder across several organisations to eventually hold positions in the Asia-Pacific. Along this journey, he moved from Perth to North Queensland to New South Wales and then Mumbai. Later, Ashley completed a Bachelor of Architecture at University of Western Australia and revelled in the history of architecture. In a new career cycle, Ashley was known as a talented designer working on, for the most part in repeat business or referral from existing clients. However, in 2019, his eyes were opened to the growing housing crisis in emerging nations and he set about to create an organisation dedicated to meeting this need. The Building Communities Initiative was therefore born. Ashley used global professional networks to bring together a group of multidisciplinary consultants who shared his passion for this cause. After two years of research and development, they had a design and construction model which could construct a community of 5,000 quality affordable homes in under six months and within a cost that meets the expectations of these governments. BCI are about to commence their first project in India using this technology and are in negotiations with several countries to construct hundreds of communities within the next five years. The initiative's long-term vision is to drive construction costs to the bare minimum and to create financial instruments which will enable one million of the world's poorest people every year to own their own home. And so very fittingly today, Ashley is here to discuss the politics of affordable housing. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for um, allowing me to be interviewed. No, it's such an interesting topic and you've had a very interesting career. So what did young Ashley wanted to be when he grew up and did you kind of get there? Well, I guess, you know, I grew up in a family business environment. So there was no nine to five. It was seven days a week talking about business, thinking about business. And I guess, you know, I saw that and it was really mapped out for me. But then in my 20s, I thought, well, you know, I really want to go and do something on my own, be independent. And, and that's when I got the job in Cairns. And it was great to not just have a new job, but move to a new city and sort of have that life experience. I was quite impatient, though, where I wanted to go. And I probably every couple of years, I was kind of changing jobs or getting a promotion or something. But that end game, I guess, was that uh, Asia-Pacific role. Particularly moving to Sydney, everybody's like, oh, well, you know, you've got to have a national role, then you've got an Asia-Pacific role, and then you come back and be a consultant. And so- <laughs> <laughs> The path that's well-trodden, I'd say. The path that's well-trodden, yes. But I think that Asia-Pacific role was just amazing. You know, I would spend 10 days a month on the road from, you know, I'd fly into India, somewhere in the middle, end up in Japan. 
you know, what a great life experience that was. Uh, and particularly living in Mumbai, you know, I really didn't want an expat life there as much as it sounded appealing in the beginning. You know, I thought, here I am in this amazing country. Why hang out with a bunch of expats and, you know, live that life when I can have a, you know, a more down-to-earth life? So that was certainly my goal. Absolutely. So back in 2008, what happened that changed your life path? And I guess what did that experience show you about reinventing yourself? Yes, well, it was certainly an interesting time. Um, I remember in the office watching the, the meltdown on TV and immediately became concerned about my future there in India. It took about 18 months until I lost my job. And for a while there, I thought, you know, I might survive it. But, you know, expats are expensive overheads, uh, particularly in developing countries, and so we tend to be quite expendable. I guess the unfortunate thing was my visa was linked to my job, and I only had a few months, and then I had to leave. My Mm. visa ran out. So for me, my career was my identity. Like a lot of people, I think, particularly in that sort of, I guess, in your 20s and maybe early 30s and so forth, it is very much linked to everything that you think about yourself. Yeah, I think so. And I think I had this amazing job, all that international travel. I was opening all the new offices. So every time I went there, you know, everyone was excited to see me and things. And it was a bit all consuming. And so I lost my job. uh, And then as a result, I lost my home. And I had a relationship there, which didn't really um, transition into coming back to Australia. So I lost my whole identity. It was completely devastating, actually. Looking back, it was the best thing that could have happened to me. But at the time, it was a bit like having my throat cut, really. (laughs) I can imagine. But you did reinvent yourself. You went back, you studied, you kind of got into a new career cycle. I did. And that was that was really exciting. I guess I, you know, I came back to Perth because my family was here and, you know, I was sitting on the lounge. My actually my parents were about to fly out to the East Coast. And my mum said to me, why didn't you ever study architecture? You loved it, you know. And by the time they'd landed in uh, Sydney, I'd been online, done my enrolment, and voila, here I am, off to UWA to be an architecture student, (laughs) which is very me. (laughs) That sounds like you found your feet. So looking at what you do now, the Building Communities Initiative, or BCI, was born with a mandate to use innovation and technology to build quality, self-sustaining communities in collaboration with the citizens of the emerging nations where you are doing these builds. Mm. And obviously you had to start a dialogue with governments and private developers across Africa and India to really understand, I guess, what the key performance indicators would look like. It must have been a very steep learning curve. Can you tell us a little bit about those early days and, and what was involved? Yeah, look, it was it was really interesting um, because I, I met someone from Ghana and they were telling me about the housing shortage. And I thought, wow, this is, you know, having worked and lived overseas, I thought this is really, really something that, that needs to be addressed. And I, I guess I put a bit of a search out uh, to see who else was out there who might like to sort of join me on this, join me on this journey. And I met some really interesting people around the world who kind of. What uh, kinds yeah. of people were you reaching out to? Obviously, you had a network, but what sort of skills and, and I guess abilities and interests were you looking for? I looked for multidisciplinary consultants, you know, legal, accounting, architecture, engineering, you name it, as if you were putting a whole organisation together. And I actually did it on the Upworks platform. 
And so I really just reached out to anybody who who kind of saw themselves as earning $150, $200 an hour because I thought, well, they're the sort of calibre people that we were, you know, that I really needed. And then I said to them, okay, now you've got to come and work for free. <laughs> and then, you know, anybody who didn't fit that, well, William, that, that was not the right thing. But, you know... It, it happened and we got there. And I think we were very fortunate that three months after that idea, we got to attend the Australia-Africa Business Beyond Borders conference. And I guess that really got us on the right path because we could then go and meet with leaders of different countries and get a feeling for what we had to achieve. So. Absolutely. So how is this particular initiative been rolled out in a way that might be different to, to people listening who might think about, you know, traditional aid organisations who build housing, whether that be temporary or permanent in developing nations or even other government sort of offerings to these nations. What what was the gap that you really were filling? Well, I think a lot of aid organisations are, are focused on temporary housing, things that they can, can do quickly um, but not necessarily providing a long-term community because a long-term community costs huge amounts of money, billions of dollars because the roads, infrastructure, all of those things. It's, it's a different animal, you know. And in country, there's a lot of smaller players who use traditional construction methods which are slow, not that high quality. And so we really reverse engineer the problem so we said, okay, here's the problem, mass housing, this is what we need to do. How are we going to do it? And really for 18 months, we didn't know if we could. It was, you know, basically all hands on deck, engineering, looking at, at how, we, how we could possibly do it. And it was only really at the end of the 18 months when we really knew we could hit those numbers and achieve it because we knew you know, there's some pretty big numbers, uh, you know, to build 200,000 homes is about eight and a half billion dollars. So to try and hit those numbers, you know, it took a bit. <laughs> yeah, you, you're kind of, of very work. ambitious. And I, I think that's the one thing that really struck me when I read about what you were trying to do is it, there's a great need. I mean, you mentioned that there's a shortfall of housing of more than 100 million homes needed across Africa and India alone. And I'm sure you, you know, I can't necessarily build them all, but there's a massive need. So how did you prioritise even where you were going to start? Well, I think because that initial contact came from Africa and from Ghana, I guess it kind of opened opened the doors up there. Now we're working Ghana and Zimbabwe. We, we've got people in the ground in quite a lot of other countries sort of pulling things together. I had a very good network in India as well. So we opened an office in Bangalore. But I think, you know, we had a lot of really great corporate partners really got on board and supported us in the beginning and that really helped us you know grow the the supply chain I guess and when you start with such economies of scale when you go to the market and say you know I want a a million of something or (laughs) you know people get on board and take notice absolutely you're serious you mean business (laughs) we mean business and we mean big business and so when you talk to really huge companies, you know, we, we can potentially be a significant part of their business. Absolutely. No, it's a great opportunity for them, I guess, as well. Changing tack a little bit, the never-ending story of Australia's rising house prices, particularly in where I am in East Coast Australia, like Sydney and Melbourne and even Hobart, have grown phenomenally during COVID lockdown times, which might be a bit unbelievable to people overseas. You know, we're talking 30, 40% valuation increases in that short period. 
and I live in a regional area these days and that's even had its own little boom. What is your view of the danger of that? Because you're working with, I guess, some of the most vulnerable communities in the world and, you know, they would love to have any kind of housing, but we're in a really different bubble here where it's, you know, how we make that accessible because there are people here who can never afford a home and barely can afford the rent. To me, it's seen as a human right, but unfortunately it's become much more of an asset class for investors here. What's your perspective on that and is there any sort of ideas you have on how we might actually address that within our own borders? It's interesting. Well, I might first touch on the international market where we work. We are able to keep construction costs low and a lot of the people who are getting these homes are government employees funded by government. So real wages there relative to inflation pretty much stays in check and our pricing stays pretty much the same. You know, in Australia, it's it's a very much a different animal. You know, it's it's market driven. It's not cost driven. And you know, in my lifetime, I've witnessed it grow year on year, decade on decade. You know, I, th- I think we need a new model. What that is, you know, you know, there are better people qualified than me, and, and no one seems to be really solving the problem. But you know, through problems come innovation, and you know, I'm, I'm really hopeful that out there there's some, some young people coming along who will, I guess, collectively group together with those people and find a different solution. But it's supply and demand, unfortunately. Absolutely. And I know inflation's, you know, not necessarily the major cause of our current sort of housing boom or never-ending housing boom. I think every time we say we're in a boom, we seem to be in another boom. <laughs> so, you know, what do you think's propping up the market in your view and, you know, affordability is obviously a big issue apartment living might not necessarily be the answer in the dense cities it's particularly because a lot of people spend a lot of time at home they can't really have you know three kids in a two-bedroom apartment if you're there all day every day so do you have any solutions I guess what I'm looking at is there any link between what you're offering in some of the nations you're operating in and and what we can do here across the I guess a very vast nation like Australia Yes, I guess. Well, firstly, in terms of a human rights issue, I mean, we certainly see housing internationally as a human rights issue. Uh, Our long-term goal is to take a big chunk of our organisation and make it a not-for-profit organisation. And I guess partner with somebody like World Bank or big financial institutions that will enable the poorest people in the world to own their own home because they're kind of the missing gap. Domestically, it's 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 difficult and and you know you touched on apartment living which is a really interesting story because traditionally these big mass housing developments don't work you know we see the problems in america in the 70s we've seen it around australia when you take a whole lot of uh, people in the same demographic and you put them into big high rise buildings often you're taking people out of one ghetto and put and making a newer one which is maybe not even better So, you know, that's fraught with danger as well. But as I said, we need more stock to get to the market. And I know that creates urban sprawl, but infill is still costing too much money. All it's done is recondition people to live in smaller places. But, you know, in a city, Sydney, Melbourne, you know, everyone's just got conditioned into living tiny apartments and still paying millions of dollars for them. Absolutely. No, I think you're right. We're We're out for some, I guess, some new thinking around that. Yeah, and it needs to expand. I mean, but the problem is we are still expanding. The urban sprawl is incredible. But as I said, we need some innovation. We need someone to 
get get serious about it and come up with a solution for the generations of the people who who just can't afford their own home. Absolutely. And won't be able to. And I think, like you mentioned, that the sprawl issue is an issue in itself because if you don't have fantastic transport networks or you can't work for home some of the week, it becomes about quality of life as well as, I guess, affordability and other aspects as well. I don't think spending four hours a day in your car commuting is viable for most people. And after pretty much two years of lockdowns, I think a lot of people have reassessed their values and thought to themselves, well, I actually don't really want to do that anymore. Yeah, I think so. And I think families are probably the hardest hit. You know, for single people, yes, you can go from that 100 square metre apartment to that 70 square metre to the whatever. And if you still want to live in the, you know, in the eastern suburbs and things, you can compromise and change your lifestyle to do that. But if you want to raise a family, it's more and more difficult. Much more complicated. Perhaps working from home is, you know, we've been through some big shifts there. So maybe people can live further out of the cities and still have a good job. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a, there's a lot a lot at stake there. But housing really, at the end of the day, I think everyone should have, you know, a house or some stability in their housing, whether they're renting or, or so forth. And I guess, unlike overseas, we don't have rent-controlled apartments even. So I think that's a big challenge for big cities here long term when, you know, you have so many investors, maybe it's their second, third, fourth property and, you know, they can sort of ask what, what they want. But Flip side is they can sell it at any time, so you don't have that stability in your in your basic everyday. Yes, and uh, you know, particularly in West Australia, I mean, trying to rent an apartment here is just almost an impossibility. Um, you know, so you know that in itself creates problems. You know, <laughs> it's bad enough trying to buy your own home, but if you can't even get a home to rent, that's yeah, that's just terrible. Absolutely. No, there's a lot to be addressed there. So a little bit more about you. Who have been your greatest mentors? Are there one or two that stand out and what made them have such an impact in your life and your career? I think throughout my career, there's there's always been a mentor who helped me get to the next level. You know, I'm really goal focused and I think, you know, in that journey, the right people have always come along at the right time to do that. But I think there's something about the Australian spirit too. When you look around, there are just so many inspiring people. I remember going to the Hugh Jackman concert and and in the interview he talks about it a bit. And he talked about when he was asked to host the Oscars, you know, and they rang up and said, Hugh, can you host the Oscars? And he said, sure, I'll give it a go. And I thought, <laughs> Amazing. That's the Australian spirit, isn't it? It's like, yeah, why not? And give I, it and a I guess, crack. <laughs> give it a crack. And I definitely have that that attitude in my life and the things that we do. I always think, well, well why not me? Why not Australia? Why not Perth? And uh, yeah, here we and are. And why not Ashley, right? <laughs> why not me? Exactly. Um, so there you go. So if you could choose a favourite book, film or song, what would it be and why? This is quite funny that I have always really loved that 1980s film Working Girl with Melanie Griffith. Oh, yep. Okay. And I've probably watched it, I don't know, a hundred times. But I I just found her tenacity and the just the way she went out of the box to, to achieve what she did. Nothing got in her way. And her ultimate success was very inspiring, apart from the fact that it was such a funny and entertaining film with a great cast. It, it's just one of those films from the day I saw it. I just really, really loved it. Yeah, we always have those films that we can go back to and they kind of transport us back in time to how we felt the first time we watched it, I yeah, think. Yeah, absolutely. But it was definitely her tenacity. It was just incredible. So that was great. 
As we wrap up our conversation today, what would be your final takeaway message for everyone listening on the politics of affordable housing? Yes, it's a good question. I think affordable housing requires a long-term strategy, be it internationally or domestically. And politicians are interested in change that they can affect within their term of government. So one does not serve the other very well. So I I think we need to rethink that. There needs to be a long-term strategy. And, you know, really as an organisation, that's what drives us. Yeah, it's complicated. Absolutely. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you today and get to know a little bit more about you and also what your organisation, Building Communities Initiative, does. If you do want to reach out to Ashley, there will be some details on the show notes. Until next time, keep well. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.